Hi everyone and welcome back to Infection Prevention in Conversation, the podcast. My name is Gemma Windsor, I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Infection Prevention in Practice, the Open Access Journal of the Healthcare Infection Society. Today on the podcast, I'll be talking to Ron Daniels about a recent white paper he's co-authored as part of the Infection Management Coalition. Ron is an NHS consultant in intensive care based in Birmingham, as well as an executive director and founder of the UK Sepsis Trust. Ron also sits on the executive board of the Global Sepsis Alliance. His expertise lies in transitional medicine and leadership, and he leads the team responsible for much of the policy and media engagement around sepsis in the UK, as well as internationally, including the adoption of the 2017 resolution on sepsis by the World Health Organization. Ron has worked closely with the NHS over many years to improve the timely and effective diagnosis and management of sepsis. The Infection Management Coalition, the first healthcare coalition of its kind, was convened in January 21 to drive change in support of holistic management and pandemic preparedness in response to the devastating impact the COVID-19 pandemic has had on societies and economies globally. Their recently published white paper makes 29 recommendations to encourage collaboration and to accelerate the creation of a system which is resilient and mature with regard to outbreak and pandemic preparedness, infection prevention, rapid recognition, diagnosis and treatment of time-critical viral and bacterial infections, and to ultimately deliver effective AMS. Welcome so much to the podcast, Ron. It's a real pleasure to have you. Thanks so much, Gemma. It's, uh, it's great to be here. I'm just going to give a brief outline uh, to our listeners just to ensure everybody's kind of on the same page as we start as to what a white paper is. And then we'll go into some details of this particular white paper. So white papers are policy documents that are produced by the government that set out their proposals for future legislation. White papers are often published as command papers and they may include a draft version of a bill that's been planned. Now, the aim of this white paper, as I've said, is to sort of support and develop a roadmap that encourages further collaboration in order to accelerate the creation of a system which is resilient. Now, the white paper outlines 29 key recommendations into four main groups, and we'll go on to talk about the detail of the white paper and um, the recommendations outlined in the white paper in a minute. But just to go back to the beginning, if I may, Ron, can I just start off by asking you how you first became interested in sepsis, how your career took the sort of turns and and that it has taken to allow you to take on the current roles that you hold. Absolutely. And there's a fairly clear year when this started, really. And it was really, it was an alignment of planets. Firstly, in 2004, the International Surviving Sepsis Campaign issued its first guidelines on sepsis and started to make a bit of noise, admittedly in the academic press and the intensive care section of the academic press around sepsis and how we needed to improve. So I'd heard about this, I took an interest. But then just a few weeks after that launch, Jem died. And, and Jem was a 37-year-old man. He died in my intensive care unit. He had a wife, Karen, two kids, Tom and Emily. And he did not need to die. There were multiple opportunities of contact with health professionals in which they didn't take a full set of observations, didn't talk to him about how it might be sepsis or what to look for or what to do if he got worse. And really the healthcare system let Jem down. And that was was the stimulus for me to get involved in the surviving sepsis campaign, which I chaired in the UK for the first few years. During that time, I developed this care pathway, the Sepsis 6, with some of our junior doctors and junior nurses. And we started to spread that around hospitals within the NHS. But it soon became clear that just as in Jem's case, educating health professionals wasn't enough, that we had to get awareness among the general public so that they could get to hospital quickly. 
And that's why we established the UK Sepsis Trust, which I founded in 2012. And it's also how the Global Sepsis Alliance, which is the organisation behind World Sepsis Day, came about. That's really interesting. I think being able to put a face, a name, a family, a story behind a health problem that we all know is so significant really makes it much more emotive for us as healthcare professionals and being able to, um, I mean, I will come on to talk about this later because it's one of the things in your recommendations, um, but I think being able to put those faces to those problems really helps us all. I can certainly remember the first patient that I felt like I lost because of an untreatable infection. Like I remember everything about that patient, even though it was quite a long time ago. Um, and I just think that makes it so poignant for us as healthcare workers and, and helps us to understand the cost, the human cost of sepsis. Um, so thank you. That's that's really eloquently explained. Um, now, the white paper was produced by the Infection Management Coalition. Um, can you just tell our listeners a little bit about what this is and, and how that came into fruition, please? Yeah, so, so really the Infection Management Coalition, as it suggests, is a coalition of stakeholders. But of course, it had to germinate. It had to come from a concept, from an idea. And in fact, several years ago, a, a number of professional societies within the UK got together to produce a position statement, essentially saying that we need to begin to talk about sepsis and antimicrobial stewardship and AMR and infection prevention. Obviously, we weren't talking about pandemic preparedness at that time. Um, all in the same policy space and all with the same voice and really to break down these silos between people who champion AMR, people who champion sepsis, to bring all of this together. So I started to have a few conversations with industry stakeholders and um, other advocacy organisations together with industry regulators, and it became immediately apparent that there was a huge appetite for this, that really not only are we talking about the individual recommendations for strategy bodies and healthcare organisations within the UK, but that this should be a policy level document and that this should influence policy not only in the UK, but also globally, so that we are well prepared for the next pandemic and we can also slow the rate of growth of antimicrobial resistance. And can I ask what challenges you came across? Because obviously you're working with professionals with obviously very, very different backgrounds, very dif different agendas and job descriptions from different sectors. So, of course, a, a big challenge is that something like this needs a secretariat. It needs funding. It needs the paper writing up. It needs the meetings convening. And, you know, frankly, it needs notes recording. And that comes at a cost. And we had to understand that small advocacy organisations such as the UK Sepsis Trust, such as Antibiotic Research UK, didn't have the internal resource to make this happen by ourselves. So one of the challenges is in funding. And that brought about the second challenge, which is to ensure that we had a group of health professionals, advocacy organisations, industry regulators, and indeed a professional society that were comfortable that this be funded by a coalition of industry stakeholders. And so that was a barrier in itself. Now, you describe, of course, bringing diverse groups of health professionals together. I don't see that that was such a barrier in itself. There, were, there was fairly uniform acceptance that we needed to do something, that it was illogical that we had one body within the NHS producing an antimicrobial resistance strategy and a second body producing um, a sepsis action plan, for example. So there was uniform acceptance that something needed to change at the policy level. I think the barrier that we did have and that we successfully overcome was the siloed mentality that people were shouting about their particular piece of the puzzle. And eventually, through 
managing that process, we came together and understood that to get this right demanded giving an equal voice to each of these four pillars. Do you think that the COVID pandemic helped you with that? Because the paper itself actually highlights that the COVID-19 pandemic was unique in that all relevant stakeholders from various sectors came together to break down previously perceived barriers and timelines. So do you think we're now able to capitalise on that? And do you think we are fully? Well, I mean, as a short answer to the second part of your question, have we done enough to capitalise on this? Absolutely not. And and this is described in in a degree of detail within the white paper. I mean, you're absolutely right, Gemma. The collaboration between Um, fragmented sectors of the healthcare system was astonishing. And we saw some incredible outputs, such as the recovery and recovery RS trials within the UK. But we also saw people from different specialities rolling up their sleeves and working together to help. I think the other thing that, that really changed was we've never had such public interest in their own health with relation to infection. And as an example, I did a a short video on social media um, at the beginning of the pandemic explaining why we ventilate people with COVID-19 prone in lay terms. And it was seen 400,000 times in just a few weeks. This thirst for knowledge, members of the public now talking about PCR testing, having significant knowledge around vaccination and so forth, we need to harness it. And we need to use it to deliver a legacy to the millions of people who've suffered at the hands of the SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus. And if we don't deliver that legacy, if we don't grow up nationally and internationally around our um, approach to the holistic management of infections, then we've done those people a disservice. I think that's fantastically put, actually. I think people's interest, never, ever so much in my career, have I had so many people want to really understand what a microbiologist does and about transmission events and yeah it's it's really fascinating even my own family who very at a very superficial level know what i do have never been so interested in the day-to-day well why might you be a false positive why wouldn't that test help you in that situation why wouldn't to really understand about diagnostics and i think you're right if we can't capitalize on that now it almost makes you think well when could we The white paper lays out really ambitious goals, and and one of them that I thought was particularly interesting was an implementation of an infection registry. And I I heard about this at the the BSAC date earlier this year. Um, So it's about implementing an infection registry with patient-level data and real-time tracking. Now, on first consideration, that that seems like a huge task with, with multiple barriers, mainly around IT and transfer of data. But actually, all that data already exists, and... When you actually break it down, you think about barriers that we overcame during the pandemic, it actually wouldn't be that difficult, especially around certain infectious diseases, because the public health infrastructure in this country is, is very sophisticated compared to compared to lots of other countries. We're very fortunate in that respect. And we have the epidemiological structures there. So I think what I want, what I wanted to ask you is how you feel we could develop those, how you think we can learn from those and 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 how we could go about rolling out such because I think that's one of the key things really looking at that patient level surveillance. So yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, for, for people listening to this, obviously people will be aware of surveillance schemes for certain resistant pathogens and so forth. They might be less aware, given your particular audience, around the national data registries for people who've undergone um who've had a heart attack, for people who are being treated with renal replacement therapy, and so on and so forth. So you're quite right. 
There are examples of this. Trauma is another example existing nationally. And we do have an opportunity within the NHS to share data between our organisations. But I think what we need to do in the space of infection is to move beyond this even. So yes, we do need those laboratory-based data that include pathogen identification and resistance patterns. We do need to use the coded data and officially recorded outcome data to try to link the two to see what's happening. But there's so much more than that. At the moment, severe infection and sepsis tend to carry quite arbitrary clinical syndromic definitions that are a long, long way from precision medicine that we see in cancer. So there are other data out there that we need to begin to interrogate. The vital signs, the non-microbiology laboratory and virology laboratory uh, laboratory data, such as the hematology, the biochemistry, and so forth. We need to look at some user input data, you know, user symptomatology. And we need to take this. One of the themes of the recommendations in the white paper is end-to-end care. And this needs to start in the community with people at risk. It needs to track through their progress in hospital, and it needs to continue into their recovery so that we can truly understand this journey, understand what recognition strategies and therapies are effective or ineffective, but also look to people who are recovering. These people we know are frequent flyers to see if we can identify red flags for acute deterioration again. And that could tie in very nicely. One of the other recommendations and themes of the paper is looking at diagnostics and point of care testing. And I think obviously the data you've just mentioned could be incredibly helpful in terms of identifying those patients where we need that resource for point of care testing in homes in the community. Absolutely. And I've just come from Berlin where we had a sponsors meeting um, with the Global Sepsis Alliance and World Sepsis Day. And a frustration that we hear from some of those industry partners is that the scientists deliver and develop excellent point of care testing diagnostics, whether that be in distinguishing between infective and non-infective causes of inflammation, whether it be pathogen identification or resistance identification, whether it be risk stratification. The technology, the rate of development of the technology is huge, but the frustration that many of these companies, some large, some small, all share is that these technologies are poorly integrated into healthcare systems, and particularly within the NHS, and that they're developing tests that can give us an answer within 20 minutes, an hour, four hours, but that information doesn't receive, doesn't progress to the clinical decision makers within that time frame. There's often delays of many hours or even days. And so what they feel, and what I a feeling I share, is that we're not delivering optimal implementation because we're not integrating these technologies into our clinical systems properly. Talking about technologies and um, horizon scanning for new technologies, the white paper talks about the medtech funding mandate. This was something that was new to me. Would you mind elaborating and explaining that for our listeners, please? Yeah, it's probably new to a lot of the listeners. It's actually quite new. It was launched in, I think, 2021, so just last year. And and really what this is, this at the moment focuses in two areas. Um, So it focuses on benign prostate disease and improving experience of patients undergoing procedures and operations. And really what they do is is they get a multi-stakeholder appraisal of novel technologies that are both clinically effective and cost effective. So they can be safely and effectively and affordably implemented within the NHS. So what we're really saying is, look, that's a great concept. It carries a degree of mandate in that 
Organizations are strongly encouraged to adopt these novel technologies. It's supported by the academic health sciences networks and other parties. But really what we want is for this medtech funding mandate to be made more ambitious in its scope, particularly in funding diagnostics that sometimes have higher upfront costs. So you can't get a net saving within the first year or first three years, but are going to bring a huge amount of benefit to the NHS and the people it serves. I mean, we, we have this conversation over and over again, both in my day job and, and with guests on the podcast around proving cost effectiveness of a diagnostic because the cost is felt by the lab, but then the savings are felt across an organisation at so many different levels that actually um, adding up all of those savings and demonstrating them is incredibly difficult. So antibiotics saved, bed days saved, et cetera, et cetera. And that's something else. I mean, just those costing models and assistance with those costing models would also be so helpful because it's really hard to, to demonstrate cost effectiveness of a diagnostic, let alone patient impact um, and, and benefits to patient outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you've mentioned the sort of the way in which NHS organisations tend to be funded. And I think we have to concede and acknowledge that that um, supports siloed thinking. You know, you've mentioned that a laboratory will receive funding according to the um, the volume and the diversity of the tests that it undertakes. And, and really the way in which the, the funds flow into a laboratory, it kind of discourages the um, integration of these technologies in uh, closer to the patient. It, it, you know, a lab would have to invest additional discretionary effort in ensuring quality control and adequate calibration for a device that, for example, was being used in intensive care or an ED. And so they're not encouraged. The, the way in which we're funded doesn't facilitate the system's integration. Yeah, that, I think that's a huge barrier at the moment. There's a couple of things that, that follow from the recommendations that are documented, which, to be honest, seem like almost no-brainers. And when you actually read them, I was quite shocked to, to, to realise, why haven't we been doing this before? What's, what, you know, why haven't we implemented these a long time ago? So the first one, which is um, around death certification and the review of policy to allow terms such as sepsis and antimicrobial resistance. Now, that, to me, begs the question, why didn't we do that years ago? What 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 were the barriers? Yeah, no, it's really interesting, isn't it? And this varies hugely from coroner to coroner. It varies significantly between different medical examiners. That there's no clear guidance as to when, how, and even if we should use terms like sepsis and antimicrobial resist. I totally agree, Gemma, that this should be a no-brainer. As a clinician who you know completes death certificates, my clear understanding of this is that you know in the in the one A box you have to put the the final um, cause of death. Now, people will often and in some organisations there's a there's a real suspicion of anyone who writes sepsis or septic shock or multi organ failure in that. And and some of the coroners, some of the medical examiners encourage people to write that somebody died of pneumonia. Well, of course you and I know that if someone dies with multi organ failure, acute kidney injury and shock, it's not the pneumonia that's caused that. It's the sepsis. So what we're saying is that sepsis should be recognised as the final pathway to death. We need to have a qualifying infection underneath it, or we need to accept terms like sepsis of unknown origin. And we need to ensure that these are counted, similarly with antimicrobial resistance. Not only is this important for death certification, it's also important when we communicate with families. So often my charity, the UK Sepsis Trust, deals with families. The first time they've heard sepsis is 
in a coroner's report or on a death certificate or in a pathologist's report. And we need to communicate both sepsis and antimicrobial resistance as contributors to death to the families that we serve. We um, quite regularly, a blood culture will flag positive with an organism after the patient's died. And I always email the um, clinician that was caring for the patient at the time of death or on the bereavement record because I feel that strongly that it would should influence discussions with family, the death certificate, etc. But I often wonder what proportion of those actually are acted on and how much of that actually is always you know, and, and I appreciate that part of that is an issue with timeliness of how we currently process blood cultures and that. But I I always wonder when I'm sending those emails, like, FYI, sadly, this patient has died. However, we now have this result, which may influence some of your decisions now. I always think to myself, like, I wonder how, how much of this is passed to the family, because I just think that's something that would give, possibly give them a lot of answers. Okay, the next thing that I thought of when I read um, some of the other uh, the recommendations were about um, nice appraisals of new antimicrobials, both clinical and cost effectiveness. Again, why haven't we been doing this consistently for many years now? Surely it would help in a consistent and objective rollout in the use of novel antimicrobials nationally. You only have to go to national, even regional conferences and education days to understand that the use of novel antimicrobials differs significantly across NHS trusts. And part of that is because of the epidemiology and the demography of patients. But partly, I just get the impression that because there's a slightly subjective adoption of new antimicrobials. And I just wondered what your thoughts were around more consistent, nice appraisals of new antibiotics. Yeah, I, mean, I think there's two aspects here, aren't there? Yeah, but, you know, the one is, of course, to ensure that we use these novel antimicrobials when they are developed uh, responsibly and appropriately, that we don't overuse them and don't subject them to the same antimicrobial resistance selection pressure as some of the more commonly used ones. But the second is to, to fuel this pipeline, to give a value incentive to companies, whether they be big or small, in developing new classes of antimicrobials. Now, you know, again, we agree this should be a no-brainer. But right now, antimicrobials are reimbursed according to development costs, marketing costs, and the need for profit. And that's illogical because antimicrobials are almost unique in that their use can produce individual benefit, but population level harm. So they're far more important to society than many other medicines that we apply to our patients. This change is new and nicer right now working with NHS England. This actually only started this year that they've got new payment models for two antimicrobial products. And, and please don't ask me which ones. I, I know one of them, but I don't want to name one without the other. But really what this is doing is looking at refunding or remunerating companies for those products in terms of the value of the drugs to the NHS. So not the cost, not the profit, not the marketing costs, but the value to the NHS and perhaps to broader society. So they're looking at applying a quality adjusted life years or quality-based assessment on the value of those antimicrobials. And that's got to be the way forward. Yeah, there has to be a financial incentive there, as you say, to keep the pipeline running, which according to historic market rules just hasn't been the case for a while. One of the other things that I think the uh, pandemic may have left a positive legacy with us, both infection specialists and, and, and more generally clinicians, is using biomarkers of infection. So we've all grown in our familiarity and our kind of trust, if you like, with things like procalcitonin. 
galactomannan, etc., and um, sort of more novel biomarkers that we've been using to help distinguish between acute viral and acute bacterial and acute fungal causes of sepsis. How do you think we can harness that and how do you think we can help to use that both to help early identify sepsis, but also to to help rationalise antibiotics and promote antibiotic stewardship? Yeah, no, that's a, a brilliant question, Gemma. And, and the answer for this could go on for hours and hours, and I promise you it, it won't do. I'm going to start by saying I think we need to encourage industry and, and we need to lead as health professionals to use the correct vocabulary with regard to what they often call, too often call, the sepsis tests. You know, there is no sepsis test. So broadly, I would group these into, into three groups. There's tests, as you said, to help distinguish between infective or non-infective causes of inflammation or perhaps bacterial versus viral versus fungal. So the tests that help us to risk stratify work out how unwell the patient is and how um, seriously we need to escalate their level of care. And then, of course, there's a test we've mentioned related to pathogen identification and, and resistance genes. And, you know, these kind of three domains are really important, but they're so often grouped into one sort of sepsis test, and, and that, that's unhelpful. We've talked about the systems integration of these devices, and you and I both work in, in Birmingham in the same trust room. And, and you know, we know that procalcitonin was never used in Birmingham or very rarely used prior to the pandemic. But during the pandemic, we have been using it. We've been using it routinely to empower us to de-escalate or stop antimicrobial therapy. And I think it's got huge potential benefit. But again, speaking as an intensive care clinician, it can take me two or three days to get that result back. Now, if I were able to get those results at the time of entry to intensive care, I could start by not prescribing the antimicrobials from the outset, and it would empower me to make that decision. Similarly, you know, there are tests like Legionella antigens and, and so forth, that if we could deliver them quickly, we wouldn't have health professionals starting those macrolide antibiotics as recommended by NICE, just in case this pneumonia is Legionnaire's disease. It could empower them to withhold them from the outset. And then moving forward into the GP surgery, I have a prejudice that the vast majority of members of the public who go to their GPs with antibiotic-seeking behaviour, they're simply seeking validation. They want to go home to their families, to their partner and say, I told you I was ill, I've got a prescription. But what if we, they could go home instead and say, I told you I was ill, the doctor did a special test and I've got a very serious viral infection. I think we can harness these technologies in much more intelligent and more impactful ways. So, yeah, we had um, the, the NICE guidelines. I believe they were the Community Acquired Pneumonia Guidelines that actually, for that reason, did advise and, and recommend point of care or, or local CRP testing to help GPs with the decision about prescribing antibiotics. But how to actually implement that and get rapid CRP results, that was never forthcoming. No, absolutely. And we know GPs are under enormous pressure. We know they have on average seven minutes with their patients. And, you know, what wasn't discussed in that was, was the mechanism. You know, what um, discretionary time is this going to add as well as discretionary cost? And it failed to properly address evidence around the impact of that. To my mind, we've got to grow up with our commissioning. We've got to begin to commission holistically for optimal infection management. We've got to bring these four pillars together, the antimicrobial stewardship, infection prevention, the rapid treatment of time-sensitive infection, as well as the disease outbreak surveillance and pandemic preparedness. So those are the four pillars. We've got to bring them together with commissioning. We have to 
you know, we both know this is an existential problem, that of antimicrobial resistance. But what's going to kill the people, as you said, is the people who have untreatable infection or untreatable sepsis as a consequence. So if this is existential, then surely we are well justified in growing up in the way we commission for globally better infections management. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with that. And I think in part, I sometimes feel like our community has failed to adequately um, really promote that point earlier on. So sort of coming full circle now to where we've began, one of the recommendations identifies talking about promoting the human face of AMR. Now, it, it's well known to yourself, to myself, we've all remembered as, as you really eloquently pointed out at the beginning, individual patients that we've lost or who will have life-altering um, complications of infection. But I think it's a more nebulous, unquantifiable concept for members of the public. They recognise that they perceive they need an antibiotic. And they may even recognise that there is a population level, a disadvantage to overuse of antibiotics. But I think that actually the specific cost of those and, and where and when and how that might impact on their neighbours, their friends, their relatives is a very difficult concept to convey. And I I think that we need to stop overlooking that, that crucial part. And, and maybe that's one of the ways, one of the campaigns that could come out of this. And I'm just interested to hear your thoughts on that, because that is something that's really strongly recommended in the paper and how specifically we could go about doing that. Yeah, and we do feel very strongly about this. And, you know, we've we've already agreed that this is an existential threat. We've already agreed that um, antimicrobial resistance is one of the massive drivers to undertreated or untreatable infection. And we remember and we can discuss how many people are affected by sepsis every year. Now, the public don't know about AMR in terms of immediacy in terms of it being personal. Dame Sally Davis has done almost certainly more than any other individual on the planet to raise government attention to antimicrobial resistance at a policy level and begin to influence industry action. And for that, I think mankind needs to thank her. But the message the public have heard is that they might not be able to have a hip replacement when they're 75 years old. It's intangible. It's nebulous. It's future. We need to use storytelling. We need human faces to make it immediate, and to make it personal. We need this issue, that of antimicrobial resistance, to become like plastics in the ocean. And the only way we'll get it to that level is if we engage the vocal generations, those social media users, our next generations, our children, and make it an immediate and personal issue that people begin to campaign behind. Yeah, I'm constantly reminding anyone that will listen that AMR is the biggest global threat to, to our race, as defined by the World Health Organization, because I think even day to day, as medics, it's something that we kind of lose focus on. So let alone members of the general public. Absolutely. And if I may just respond to that, you know, we, we know that Lord O'Neill, Jim O'Neill, estimated that if we don't act now, then by 2050, we'll see an extra 10 million lives lost as a consequence of AMR. However, 49 million people every year develop sepsis around the world, with 11 million people dying. Now, if we don't have effective antimicrobials, and it might not be by 2050 that we're totally out of them, but if we don't act soon, it will certainly be this century, not 11 million will die, but 49 million. Now, that quantum, those extra 38 million deaths, will tip the global population 
of humans from a position of growth to a position of decline. And I think this is really stark evidence that if we don't act now, this is an existential crisis and it will bring about the demise of the human race. Um, I think that might be a really good place to end. I'd got a quote um, from the paper to end on, but actually I much prefer yours. Um, is there anything else that you would like to bring up or talk about before we draw it to a close? Well, I, I think the only thing I'd add, and of course, people and their lives are the most important, but mindful that people who have undertreated infection, um, often as a consequence of resistance, but sometimes as a consequence of the healthcare system, system letting them down, and people who survive sepsis or are bereaved by sepsis, there is a fiscal cost as well. And we commissioned a piece of work from York Health Economics Consortium a few years ago, and it showed that sepsis alone, not talking about the broader issue of severe infection, costs the UK economy as much as £15.6 billion every year. So we would argue that not only should we make these changes because they're the right thing to do, but also that we can't afford not to make these changes. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast this week. I think that's been a fantastic introduction and I hope that we have encouraged all of our listeners to go and find the white paper and to to read it. Um, So I'd like to thank you so much, Ron, for talking with me. A link to the white paper and to the Sepsis Trust will be included in the show notes so all of our listeners can find out more. For updates about the podcast, the HIST journals and the society more broadly, Please follow us on Twitter at JHI Editor and at IPIP underscore open. Finally, please support us by liking and subscribing to Infection Prevention in Conversation via your usual podcast channels. Thank you.